Hello, this is Dr. Pingxian Chen, the editor in chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the December 2018 issue of Heart Rhythm. The featured article this month is titled "Electrical Isolation of the Left Atrial Appendage Increases the Risk of Ischemic Stroke and Transient Ischemic Attack." Regardless of post-isolation flow velocity, by Kim et al. from Korea University, Seoul, Republic of Korea. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor Dr. Daniel Mooring can be found at www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The study includes 2,000. 352 consecutive patients undergoing AF ablation. Among them, 39 had left atrial appendage isolation. They found that the patient with LAA isolation had a significantly higher rate of ischemic stroke, or TIA, than did those without LAA isolation. The LAA flow velocity of post LAA isolation status was not significantly different between patients who did and did not experience ischemic stroke, or TIA. The authors conclude that a significantly increased risk of ischemic stroke or TIA was observed in patients with electrical isolation of the LAA. In this study, anticoagulation was discontinued. At the operator's discretion, if no AF was documented on regular holter monitoring, whether or not the absence of continued anticoagulation during follow-up contributed to the results of the study is unclear. This issue is a focus issue on devices. The first article is titled "Predicted Longevity." Of contemporary cardiac implantable electronic devices, colon, a call for industry-wide standardized reporting. The paper was written by Munawar et al. from University Adelaide, Australia. The authors expect extracted data for current model pacemakers, ICDs, and CRT defibrillators from product menus. The longevity estimations were based on standardized programming parameters. The results show that maximum predicted longevity of single and dual chamber pacemakers was 12 and 9.8 years, respectively. Use of ad- advanced features can reduce expected longevity by about 1.4 years. Maximum predicted longevity of ICDs and CRTDs was 12.4 and 8.4 years, respectively. Of note, there was greater than 40% variation in predicted CIED longevity, according to device manufacturers. The authors conclude that contemporary CIEDs demonstrate highly variable predicted longevity. According to device manufacturers, this may impact on healthcare costs and long-term clinical outcomes. 
Therefore, the authors call for an industry-wide standardized reporting of CIED longevity. Next up is a paper titled Long-Term Reverse Remodeling by Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy with Multipoint Pacing, a feasibility study of non-invasive hemodynamics-guided device programming. This paper was written by Lurcher et al., Medical University Graz, Austria. The authors studied 42 patients enrolled in four European centers. Relative to atrial-only pacing, the best BIV and the best multipoint pacing configurations produced significant systolic BP elevations of 3.1 mm mercury for BIV and 4.1 mm mercury for multipoint pacing. Greater systolic BP elevations were associated with the best multipoint pacing compared with the best BIV configurations in 78% of the patients. Of multipoint pacing program patients, completing the six months follow-up visit, 85% were classified as CRT responders. The authors conclude that acute non-invasive hemodynamics after CRT device implantation predominantly favored multipoint pacing over BIV programming. Multipoint pacing programming guided by non-invasive hemodynamics resulted in positive LV structural remodeling. These results suggest that routine acute non-invasive hemodynamic optimization based on systolic BP assessment will help us individualize the best pacing modalities in CRT. Zhang et al. from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston wrote the next article titled Transvenous Lead Extraction During Uninterrupted Warfarin Therapy feasibility, and outcomes. The authors performed a retrospective study of 1,200 patients undergoing transvenous lead extraction while receiving uninterrupted warfarin therapy. Of these patients, 62 underwent transvenous lead extraction during uninterrupted warfarin therapy with therapeutic INR. There was 98.4% procedural and clinical success rate. Two patients had procedure-related complications. One small pericardial effusion that resolved spontaneously and one femoral vein tear requiring vascular repair. The authors conclude that transvenous lead extraction during uninterrupted warfarin therapy with therapeutic INR may be considered in patients at high risk for thromboembolism. This study provided evidence showing that therapeutic anticoagulation does not necessarily lead to a prohibitive bleeding risk in transvenous lead extraction. This study is limited by the retrospective nature of the study design. A prospective randomized study may be needed to compare the risk-benefit ratio of this approach. The next paper is Repolarization Heterogeneity in Patients with Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy and its Relation to Ventricular Tachyarrhythmias, 
by Vijay et al. from University Medical Center, Ljubljana,、uh, Slovenia. The authors prospectively included 64 patients with heart failure treated with CRT. The QT interval, TPTE, and TPTE over QT ratio were analyzed to determine repolarization heterogeneity. They found a significant increase of repolarization heterogeneity in the first months following CRT, followed by decline during 12 months of follow-up. Patients with VTVF during long-term follow-up had higher repolarization heterogeneity at mid-term follow-up than patients without VTVF. In multivariate Cox regression analysis. Only high repolarization heterogeneity and midterm follow-up, that is TPTE over QT ratio of greater than 0.26, was independently associated with high risk of VTVF. The authors conclu- conclude that CRT induces time-dependent changes in repolarization parameters in the first year after implantation. High repolarization heterogeneity and midterm follow-up. Was associated with higher rate of VTVF during long-term follow-up. These findings also suggest that electrophysiological remodeling plays a role in determining long-term arrhythmia outcomes after CRT. Next up is a review article by Rustin et al. from University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. The paper is titled. Implantable cardioverter defibrillator use in catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. A systematic review. The authors found 53 studies describing 1,400 patients with CPVT. Among them, 35% of patients had an ICD. Almost all were treated with beta blockers, and 13% with flaconide. Sympathetic denervation was performed in 23%. Nearly half of the patients re- received an ICD for primary prevention, and 12% were prescribed opti- optical, optimal antiarrhythmic therapy. During follow-up, there were high rates of appropriate and inappropriate shocks, and seven patients died. An ICD-associated electrical storm. Was implicated in four deaths. Additional complications such as lead failure, endocarditis, or surgical revisions were observed in 32%. The authors concluded that ICDs were common in patients with CPVT and are associated with a high burden of shocks and complications. The reliance on primary prevention ICDs and poor uptake. Of adjuvant antiarrhythmic therapies suggests that improved adherence to guideline-directed management could reduce ICD use and ICD-related harm in this group of patients. In other words, this group of patients may benefit from better antiarrhythmic management because of high rates of shocks and electrical storms associated with ICDs. Next up is updated performance of the micro transcaster pacemaker in the real world setting. A comparison to the investigational study and a transvenous 
historical control. The paper was written by El Chami et al. from Emory University, Atlanta. The authors report that the Micra device was successfully implanted in 1,800 patients. The major complication rate was 2.7% in the first year. The risk of major complications was 63% lower than that for patients with transvenous pacemakers. The major complication rate tended lower in the Micra post-approval registry than in the Investigational Device Exemption, or IDE, study, driven by the lower pericardial effusion rate. The authors conclude that the performance of the Micra transcaster pacemaker in international clinical practice remains consistent with previously reported data. Major complications were infrequent and occurred 63% less often compared with transvenous systems. A limitation of the study is that the patients were not randomly assigned to different groups. Moore et al. from UCLA wrote the following article titled Implantation Techniques and Outcomes After Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy for Congenitally Corrected Transposition of the Great Arteries. The authors retrospectively identified 20 patients with CRT. The indication for CRT was pacing-induced ventricular dysfunction in 60%, AV block in 25%, and heart failure and QRS prolongation in 15%. A transvenous approach was successful in 95% in whom it was attempted with cannulation of a posterior septal ostium in 78% of, patient, uh, of patients, the vein of Marshall in 11%, and the superior ectopic ostium in 11%. The authors conclude that the transvenous approach to CRT involving distinct coronary venous pattern is feasible for most patients with congenitally corrected transposition of great arteries. Long-term outcome is favorable, but is characterized by return of right ventricular dysfunction in some patients. Because an increasing number of congenital heart disease patients are surviving to adulthood, more of these patients will require CRT implantation. This study provided useful guidance to the approach. The next paper is by Vander Bell et al. titled Impact of Atrial Fibrillation on Improvement of Functional Mitral Regurgitation in Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy. The authors studied a total of 400 patients at the six months follow up functional mitral regurgitation improved after CRT in 45% with sinus rhythm versus 30% of AF patients. Despite similar LV reverse remodeling at six months after CRT, patients with sinus rhythm exhibited smaller LA volumes and mitral annular diameters compared to AF patients. The authors conclude that functional mitral regurgitation improvement is more common in CRT recipients in sinus rhythm versus atrial fibrillation, despite a similar degree of LV remodeling. A limitation is a 
retrospective study design, whether or not the rhythm control of AF will improve response to CRT in these patients remains unknown. Next up is rate control and clinical outcomes in patients with atrial fibrillation and obstructive lung disease by Yu et al. from Aju University School of Medicine, Korea. This study used the entire database provided by the National Health Insurance Service from 2002 to 2015. Approximately 13,000 patients were included. The risk of mortality was lower with the use of selective and non-selective beta blockers as compared to use of calcium channel blockers. Digoxin use correlated with worse survival. The authors conclude that among patients with atrial fibrillation and obstructive lung diseases, rate control treatment using beta blockers was associated with a significant reduction of mortality compared with calcium channel blockers. The present study adds to the growing, growing body of literature suggesting that the presence of obstructive lung disease should not dissuade clinicians from using beta blockers. It may be their best option for rate control. These findings will need confirmation by prospective randomized trials. Yoko Kawa et al. from University of Michigan wrote the next article titled Quiral Ablation Untral Pulmonary Vein Isolation versus Force Sensing Radio Frequency Caster Ablation for Pulmonary Vein and the Posterior Left Atrial Isolation in Patients with Persistent Atrial Fibrillation. Untral pulmonary vein isolation was performed in 167 consecutive patients with persistent AF. Among them, quiral balloon ablation was used in 90, while contact force RF caster ablation was used in 77. During 21 months of follow-up after a single ablation procedure, 41% in the cryo group and 50% in the contact force RFA group remained in sinus rhythm without antiarrhythmic drugs. After repeat ablation, sinus rhythm was maintained in 61% and 68% in the cryo and contact force RFA group, respectively. The authors conclude that in persistent AF, an initial approach of these two ablation techniques has a similar efficacy of 40 to 50% without antiarrhythmic drugs. After repeat ablation, sinus rhythm is maintained in 60 to 70% of patients without antiarrhythmic drugs. It appears that these two techniques have similar efficacies in ablating persistent AF. An limitation is that this study did not randomly assign patients to different arms of the therapy. Next up is a paper by Heger et al. from University Heart Center in Lübeck, Germany. The paper is titled, What is the real recurrence rate after cryo-balloon-based pulmonary vein isolation? Lessons from rhythm follow-up based on implanted cardiac devices with continuous atrial monitoring. The authors studied 670 consecutive patients with second-generation cryo-balloon PV isolation. In 66 patients, an implantable cardiac device with continuous monitor function was independently implanted before the procedure. 
there was 98.4% success in PV isolation in the device group. At one year follow-up, the clinical success in terms of freedom from AF recurrence was 60% in the device group, significantly lower than 77% in the control group. In the subset of patients who were monitored with the implanted device, AF AT burden decreased from 40 to 10%. The authors conclude that second generation choir balloon PV isolation seems safe and feasible in patients with an implanted cardiac device. A significantly higher AF AT burden was seen in patients with an implanted cardiac device compared to a control group. These results suggest that patients with implantable devices may benefit from improved detection of AF recurrences as compared with intermittent outpatient ECGs and symptom-based follow-up visits. However, whether or not increased detection of AF recurrences translates into improved mortality and reduced morbidity remain unknown. Takikawa et al. from Tokyo Medical and Dental University, Japan, wrote the following article titled Importance of Bipolar Electro-Orientation on Local Electrogram Properties. The authors used HD-32 grid caster in seven sheep with anterior myocardial infarction. A total of 4,000 electrograms were analyzed for 2,000 sites. The voltage variation was maximized at sites where the activation wavefront was perpendicular to the one bipolar direction and parallel to the other. Local ventricular abnormal activities, or LAVAs, were detected in 29% of sites in total and were frequently distributed in the MRI-defined border area. The authors found that 30% of LAVAs were missed in one direction or the other. When LAVAs detected in a northeast direction were, were used as the reference, only 57% matched with those detected in the southeast direction. The authors conclude that the bipolar voltage and distribution of LAVAs may differ significantly between diagonally orthogonal bipolar pairs at any given site, because lava detection may be important for substrate-based VT ablation, the information provided in this pa paper may lead to better identification of lava and facilitate VT ablation. This study is limited by the absence of VT in this animal model. Coming up is an article titled Early Experience with Intravenous Sotalo in Children with and Without Congenital Heart Disease. Valdez et al. from Texas Children's Hospital performed a retrospective study of 47 pediatric patients re receiving IV Sotalo. The median age was 2 years with a median weight of 13 kilograms. Supraventricular arrhythmias occurred in 85% and ventricular tachycardia in 15% of the patients. Among 24 patients rece receiving IV Sotalo for an active arrhythmia, acute termination was achieved in 21 or 88%. 
23 patients received IV sotol as maintenance therapy for recurrent arrhythmias owing to inability to take oral antiarrhythmic medications. 19 of these, or 83%, were controlled with sotolol monotherapy. No patient required discontinuation of IV sotolol due to adverse effects, proarrhythmia, or QT prolongation. This study shows that IV sotolol is an effective antiarrhythmic option for pediatric patients and may be an excellent agent for acute termination of active arrhythmias. Sotolol was well tolerated with no patient requiring discontinuation secondary to adverse effects. While oral sotolol has been commonly used for arrhythmia control, Few sets of data are available to support IV sotolol use in pediatric patients. While the study is limited by the retrospective nature of the study design, it has provided useful information for patient care. Kostrewa et al. from Heidelberg University, Germany, wrote the following article titled Cardiac Impact of R-wave-triggered irreversible electroporation therapy. Irreversible electroporation is a novel tumor ablative therapy technique using electrical fields to induce apoptosis in target tissues. The authors performed a study in 26 patients with diagnosis of liver, lung, kidney, and other common malignant tumors who underwent ECG-gated irreversible electroporation. Depending on lesion size, two to five needles were introduced around and if necessary into the lesion using sequential CT guidance. The shortest distance between the ablation zone to the pericardium was six millimeter. The mean energy delivered was over 3000 joules. After the procedure, Nine patients, or 35%, showed an increase in high-sensitivity troponin-1, and 21 patients had an increase in anti-pro-BMP after ablation. 15 patients developed arrhythmias related to the procedure. One patient developed multiple non-sustained VT, and one developed atrial fibrillation. An additional 12 patients had clinically benign arrhythmias. The authors conclude that subclinical myocardial injury and non-fatal cardiac arrhythmias can occur in irreversible electroporation treatment. As noted in an accompanying editorial by Aras and Efimov, reversible electroporation is extensively documented after electrical defibrillation and may play a role in generating post-shock cardiac arrhythmias. The results of the present study suggest that irreversible electroporation should be used with caution. Next up is a paper titled Accelerated Conversion of Atrial Fibrillation to Normal Sinus Rhythm by Pulmonary Delivery of Flaconine Acetate in a Porcine Model by Verrier et al. from Beth Israel Medical Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. In 11 close-chest anesthetized Yorkshire pigs, atrial fibrillation was induced by intrapericardial administration of acetylcholine 
followed by burst pacing and allowed to continue for two minutes before intratracheal flaconine administration. The authors found that intratracheal flaconine significantly reduced AF burden compared to the drug-free baseline. There was a strong inverse correlation between the duration of AF and the change in atrial depolarization duration in response to intratracheal flaconine. The authors conclude that intratracheal flaconine installation is effective in rapidly converting AF to normal sinus rhythm and restoring mean arterial pressure and heart rate to baseline values. The basis for this efficacy is likely rapid absorption of the drug through the lungs and delivery as a first-pass bolus to the left atrial and ventricular chambers and then to the coronary arterial circulation. A potential clinical translation would be to develop inhalation antiarrhythmic therapy for acute termination of atrial fibrillation. In addition to the original articles I've discussed, this issue of the journal also publishes an unknown of the month article on termination of a narrow QRS tachycardia by single extra stimulus. What is the mechanism? A Josephson and Williams ECG titled Two Different P Waves After a Single Ventricular Premature Beat in a 33-Year-Old Man, four EP News articles, and a letter to editor. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Harry Lim, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Shen Chen.